Pentecost. So it's a genuine wish. I hope the the experience of a risen, a risen Lord Christ, um, you all carry with you through the through the season of Pentecost. So any any prayers? Did you start them already, Doc? Mm-hmm. Any prayers for tonight? I do, Bob. This is Julie. Hi, Julie. It's, it's sorry. I didn't want. It's good to hear. Can you? Anyway, I know sometimes you don't want to show yourself. You can oh, okay. show yourself on this. Good. There you are. Hi. Hi. No, my friend, her daughter um, has a special needs child and then just had uh, two stillborn twins. Wow. And the, the family is just, it's, it's been a tragedy. Yeah. They, they were 28 weeks, so she carried those babies for 28 weeks and they were both stillborn. They didn't have, they didn't have, sorry, Julie, I'm so out of touch with the world. The, the doctors had no indication of that before the b- delivery? There was no warning for her? No. Yeah, she knew one was gone, and then there was no sign from the second one later on. So, what's the um, what are the parents' names, Julie? Sue and Carter. Carter. Is, yeah, they are. They are grieving. This is it's a real tragedy. Yeah. It's a real tragedy. Yeah. Anybody else? Anybody else? Bless your souls, bless your souls. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you um, this day, for the gift of yourself at Mass this morning, for your words to us. Um, Mass, Doc. The, um, in the first reading, Paul, or I can't remember which. The Acts. The, the Acts, was it? Um, we were being asked to be bold, to bring a boldness to what we do in the world. And in the gospel, um, Christ had to be, I, do you remember it? God, I'm sorry. We were asked to carry Christ to the world boldly. It's after Easter, he's died and risen. So we have every reason to take courage. It's, to me, it's to, the timing on this is, and I'm saying this from not just Easter, from the perspective of Easter, from but from this perspective in my age, because I live each day aware that I may not be here to you know tomorrow. It's just we're we're both of that age. Um, we've been given a call. All of us have been asked to take Christ to the world. The whole book, Violent Bared Away, is direct dealing with that. I think more directly than any book we have read in the time that we've been together. It's it's knocking me off my feet. It's it's just leaving me amazed. Strengthen us, Christ, please, with your spirit. Give us the courage and the humility to turn from the world, to be here in the world, to bring your love to it, to put ourselves away, that we can be you. The, the title is The Violent Bear It Away. I think people misread that. Um, I hope we can straighten it out. To be with you is to be in a position that puts the world ill at ease. It's not comfortable with what you're asking. Um, So it asks more of us. So strengthen us, please. And once again, I ask a blessing on the work that we're doing 
um, in gratitude to Flannery O'Connor, the great, the great gift she's given us, help us always to take the things that we learn and not leave them in our heads, not leave them in our heads, make them living in our lives. That's our faith. Strengthen us, please. Where we fail, forgive us, please. Um, help us in our failures to pick ourselves up, go at it again, keep going. Whatever our failures, keep going. Ask a special blessing on um, Sue and Carter. Um, for both of them, particularly the mom, to carry physically a child, a life in your womb and lose it in both of them. Um, I know this is going to sound strange. Um, I ask this blessing on both of them. That in one respect, both of them let go of those kids. The world so easily looks at things the wrong way. Our faith is that um, those kids will be blessed. Let them say, I'm certainly going to say a blessing tonight. I'm going to baptize them. It's going to be my prayer tonight. Let the parents baptize those kids. Um, baptize them. Um, offer them to God. And in some ways, find a gladness, a hope, knowing, believing. This is what everything in Easter has been taking us towards. We don't see very well if we don't believe. Help their sight. Give them their sight. Um, strengthen in them a belief so that they what they see will be different. That these two kids that they just lost um, will want... God... will one day greet them in heaven and make them glad and surprised um, and increase their joy. That's our hope. All the works have been taking us there. So in whatever way it seems tragic in this world, um, it's only because the world looks at things that way, you know, as if that's it. It's not our faith. So... Be with Sue and Carter, both of them. Inspire them with your light. Help them to see um, that you're doing something, even if they don't see it. And to put their hope and their faith there. And let their lives go on, whether they have other children or not. Um, let that blessing be upon them, please. Um, we offer these prayers in you, Christ, our Lord. Amen. Um, I don't, God, I'm so out of it tonight. I didn't, um, um, the, the, the lecture took everything out of me. Hi, hi, Karen. Um, I don't have a poem tonight, so I'm going to skip the poem. We're going to go straight to Flannery O'Connor. I want to do a very quick review, and then I want to get to the book, because there are some things. If you have not looked at my outline, my suggestion is go online, get the folder and print it, because I think it's helpful. Um, I want to just do a quick review of some of the things that we covered last week. And then I want to get to this story because there's, there's lots going on that in my mind take us to the center of our faith. And it's an uncomfortable place to be. And I don't want to shirk that. So um, so let's... Um, Let's do a quick review. 
background. Remember, she she died young age. I think she was about 45 when she died from lupus. She grew up Catholic. She was raised Catholic. Um, I told you about some of the earlier scenes that are memorable for me in the little reading that I've done on her. When she was in high school or college, she was an editor of the of the newspaper and wrote a letter to everybody saying the stands that they were going to take were going to be for the sake of truth and if you really didn't like it, they could crumple up the paper and put it in a wastebasket on their way out. <laughs> She's just a good, tough woman. Just a good, tough woman. Um, I remember um, another um, another anecdote in which she described being raised on a farm with peacocks and love the peacocks because you know that when they're fantailed they, they display this sort of rainbow beauty with the colors in their tails and she looked at them as an image of Christ because she said you could never coax them to do what you wanted so if you wanted them to display themselves for you you could keep going on forever and talking to them but they're not going to they were not going to accommodate you and she saw in that an image of Christ we just can't make him do what we want we have to learn to make our wills one with his own, you know, to, to get past our pride and our sense of self-sufficiency. And one of the other anecdotes I remember, I, I don't think I mentioned last week, is she, she describes it, I think, in her letters or her notebooks when she was really young. I think, I, I may be not doing justice to her, I don't think I am, I think this is probably pretty accurate. When she was growing up, she was a very, very spiteful young girl, very proud, very spiteful, very stubborn to herself. And I say that full of compliments because she went on to do the great writing. If you've read Violent Bear Away, you know that the only word to describe Tarwater is spite. I mean, there's nothing he does that doesn't done in spite. His great uncle can say something, Rayburn could, he's not going to let anybody go. Um, his, his answer is, I'm not going to listen to anybody, I'm going to go my own way, I'm going to do what I want, I'm not beholden to anybody, it's just pure spite. There was this one episode that she was describing when she was young of imagining herself wrestling with an angel, knowing that she'd be defeated. But her one hope was that she could have rustled his feathers and left some feathers on the floor to show, <laughs> you know, her part of the struggle. So she had this wonderful sense of human pride and its weaknesses and, you know, its implications and what it done. Wonderful woman. Um, her father died of lupus, um, and she died of a relatively young age. When she discovered she had it, she had to move from these um, from the New York um, colonies, the artist colonies, and the farm with the Fitzgeralds. She was living with these places that she stayed, and went home and spent the last um, space of time at her home writing a lot on uh, on how to write. And I would encourage all of you, more than I can say, um, the book Mystery and Manners by Flannery O'Connor is one of the finest collection of essays I have ever read in my life on writing, a Catholic sensibility, what it means to be Catholic. It's down home, it's simple, it's plain, and it's so full of intelligence. St. Thomas runs through the whole thing. It's a remarkable collection of essays. They're all short, they're all readable. Um, it's a wonderful collection. I'm going to wait on the principles until next week um, when we finish it. Um, but some of the things we touched on last week, one of the questions I asked is, um, how is her narrative style different from, say, the classical realist style of Jane Austen or, or um, 
um, Hawthorne, Dickens, George Eliot, I mean, you pick it, Trollope, Field, and any of them. Um, what she does is amazing. Um, she knows that what Conrad did and Henry James um, was radical for the novel. It, uh, what Henry James and Conrad did changed the novel. What she did, it seems to me, um, went way beyond those men because she she dealt with good and evil in a way that none of them did. Not Hemingway, not Conrad, not James. Um, but we talked about this, that up until the 19th century, the, the mode of narrative structure was generally um, sequential, linear. One event following another, because that's the way physics represented the world. It was the way everybody thought the world was. So when people told a story, like, let's take Jane Austen. She would describe it in chronological order. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. And but in the modern world, when time gets relative and inverted and turns back on itself with notions like that, and Freud writes you know, all of his works on dreams and the unconscious, people begin to be aware that there are things like automatic um, memories or hallucinations or dreams um, or, or conditions of psychosis, schizophrenia, where somebody will be going about their world and, and, and their way of looking at the world be, will be interrupted by a memory or a fear. And it changes narrative structure. So Conrad played with it. Henry James did. Henry, um, Hemingway, not so much. But we can't read Flannery O'Connor's The Violent Beard Away without realizing time is not sequential, it's not linear, because spiritual meaning is not linear. This is crucial. This goes, we, here it is, Fred. This goes to Boethius and that still point to Eliot and what we've been doing. Because God can break into time, spiritual dreams or visions can break into time at any point. Graces can come. We can be in the middle of a city looking at a building and suddenly be struck by something. So time is not any longer to be described in terms of cause and effect or simple um, causality. The working, the causality of the spirit is a different thing. And in really great writers like Dostoevsky, we saw that with Brothers and with O'Connor, we see that the narrative structure cannot, um, cannot adequately represent um, real life as it is and treat it sequentially. We actually saw this with Faulkner. We all, this all began with us when we did Faulkner and Sound of the Fury and you know, with Benji who who couldn't go five seconds without having an automatic memory interrupt his view of the world. So, But I think what Jane Austen does with I mean, sorry, what Flannery O'Connor does with it here is nothing short of amazing. I, I think what she does puts Hemingway to shame, truthfully. I mean, that's my opinion. Um, so the narrative structure is not linear. Um, time flips back on itself, and at some instances in the novel, we events are described making it clear to us that certain things are happening simultaneously. We're going to get to that in the Carmody episode today because I think it's I think it's I think it's one of the most powerful in all of literature. What happens there is remarkable and you know that when Raber is watching the Carmody's he's being reminded of what happens at that moment when he's at Powderhead and his father comes to get him. He's just been baptized 
Lucetta's talk is about baptism, and the two events, um, what interfuse, um, take place with each other simultaneously. It's a it's an extraordinary moment. Um, so she's making it clear that we can't understand the world in simple cause effect terms. That in terms of human psychology or spirituality or human reality, those terms don't apply anymore. That certain things happen in the unconscious that affect a person's life. And in her Catholic view, it's um, those problems are going to be resolved in one or two ways. They're either going to, um, in, in almost all the cases, they bring a person to a, cho- a point of choice. And in that choice, he's either going to turn towards God or he's going to turn away from God. And every one of her stories, almost every one of her stories, takes us to that point. What we've been calling all along since we first did O'Connor, I don't know, two years ago, and we looked at her short stories, um, grotesque comedy. These, these climactic moments when a person suddenly has to face who he is and how he will go ahead. So it's very, it's very similar to what Socrates faced in the cave, because remember, the Alenctus and Aporia, it's that moment when Socrates is dealing with his interlocutors and raises questions that make them see they don't know what they think they know, and they've got a choice. They can either go on aware that they don't know what they think they know and learn to grow in wisdom, or they can stay trapped in the cave believing they've got all the answers when they don't. So the modern world, the Christian world, is only taking what Plato did in worldly terms and giving it a spiritual dimension. Um, um, I've got the genealogy and the outline on the outline I gave you. I hope you guys are all going to the website to get this stuff. Some of the some of the themes that we touched on last week, the passing on and receiving of an inheritance. Um, the book opens on Old Tarwater's death. I don't think that's an accident. That shows her brilliance as a writer. Everything that happens in that book follows on her. Old Tarwater's death. It's her way of showing, answering the modern world, that life only begins with death. Everything that happens comes to a point of crisis because that old man dies. So the whole novel has to be seen in terms of something growing out of that moment. How we deal with death, what we do with death. Whether we look at it darkly as an end of thing or whether we see it's the beginning of things. So the passing on of an inheritance, receiving it, the calling to be a prophet. All Catholics, all Christians are called to be priests, prophets, kings. We are asked to take responsibility for our lives, to bring Christ to the world when the world doesn't want him, to suffer that um, as a part of our call. That's what the whole book is about. Um, Death is a major theme. What's the, you can't be... Deader than dead? dead. Is that the team? Repeated, we keep hearing that phrase in the book, early in the book and in the middle of the book, you can't be deader than dead. It's the way the world says, that's it. There's nothing more. You can't be deader than dead. And you know what the whole book is a proof of is, that's not true. That's the way the world sees things. 
So er everything associated with death is tragic, it's dark. That is not the way a Christian is asked to see things. At the, I mean, I hope we, this is Easter. I mean, it's sort of the timing of this is stunning to me right now. All the disciples had to go around mourning after Christ's death. Yeah? This was their God. He died. And three days later, a new life. And let me even put it more dramatically. Peter betrayed Christ before to lead it, help lead him to his crucifixion. Two weeks later, in the Acts of the Apostles, he's standing up and t telling the Jews, this is the man you crucified. The man he helped crucify was risen. Imagine the strength that he took from that and learning to see what he didn't see before. Death is not the end of things. The whole point of Christianity is that it finally answers death in a way the pagan world couldn't. So the very structure of the book is pointing out that truth. Everything that happens follows old Tarwater's death. That's the whole novel. The city, the whole shift takes, uh, takes the form of moving from Powderhead in the country to the city. And it's where all these crises take place. Tarwater has got, <laughs> he's got to struggle with this calling that he received from his great uncle, a calling that he does not want. He wants nothing to do with his uncle. He burns him up. I love, I love the image we had when we finished our class last time. You know, these two eyes following him as he left Powderhead, um, and and the fire burning like it was a chariot, because that's the moment um, that alludes to that moment when Elijah ascends into the heaven. Elisha is with him. He wants his mantle. Um, he sees Elijah ascending chariots of fire. He picks up the mantle. And he hits the water, the water separates, he walks across the Jordan, and he begins his ministry as the prophet. So that moment of burning the house and going on is seen in terms of that chariot. That this is a moment, even though old, young Tarwater is refusing it, it's a, it's a moment of a passing on of a mantle. The old man's way of, last, of living is being passed on in death. Um... So the, the move from the country to the city is going to bring young Tarwater to a crisis. He's, he's going to have to deal with all the resentments, the spite with which he approached his great uncle and everything that happens. I, I want to wait on that, not to, not to give it away. Um, and the stranger um, that, that, um, that makes up so much of the part of the first one, those are some of the major themes that we talked about. In the outline I sent you, I, I gave you a very rough scheme of three stages historically of man dealing with his fall. And I just want to recount them now briefly, even though I gave them in your notes. I hope, I hope you guys are going online to get these outlines. The pagans saw that all men, universally all men, suffered from a weakness. But some of them also believed there were ways to correct that weakness, Aristotle and Plato in particular. You know that Plato believed that we were all stuck in a cave, and if we learned to question things, use our intellects, we could come out. So all of them believed that virtue was possible, but they also knew that it was rare. Only a few good people would make the effort to learn from their mistakes to become virtuous. 
So the fall has always been with us. Men have dealt with it in a number of ways. In, in the pagan world, pre-Christian world, Plato and Aristotle dealt with it knowing that we're flawed, we're weak, but we can do things about our character to help ourselves. Um, Plato saw it as a moment of illumination coming out of the cave. Aristotle saw it in terms of becoming virtuous. Um, none of them saw the afterlife the way Christians do. They believed in an afterlife, but the afterlife was pretty dark. They believed in Elysium, Elysium Fields, a good a place for the blessed, but they certainly didn't see heaven the way we do with a Christ or the Trinity. The Christian Middle Ages changed that by saying that all men were all men were in sin, that Christ came to atone for an injustice that we committed against God, and He offered us a way out of it. So. We've done, we did that in the Divine Comedy, which to me was the best treatment of it I, I know of in all of literature. Remember, Christ took on our nature, and according to our nature, no man was more justly punished. That was an act of justice. He had, somebody had to atone for the injustice against God. So what he did was bring a justice into the world, and he called all men to work for justice. But if you look at the person who assumed that nature, no man was more unjustly treated because he was God. So there's the great paradox at the center of Christianity. Christ said, I, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. The great problem he left us with is to fulfill the law, to work for justice, but also to bring to it a, a mercy that we don't deserve, that none of us deserves. That's the great problem, and I think most of the writers that we've been dealing with have been struggling. I mean, all of them, Shakespeare, Dante. Um, so the pagans looked at our human weaknesses one way, the Christians look at it another. The modern looks at it in an entirely different way. I don't want to go into the complexity. It's there in my notes, but just to say this. In one major respect, Raber represents a modern. He's in his head. He thinks in terms of probability. Those are mathematical abstractions. Um, the probability of getting into an accident, the probability of marriage or divorce or how many children or what happens if you get in the car and you don't strap your children down or what you do with your bank account. The modern man lives in abstractions. That's quanti quantified abstraction. He does not deal with concrete things. He lives in his head. That's where Raber is. Everything he does is in his head. Flannery Connor makes that point again and again. The whole language that Christianity used, brought into the world, has now been temporalized. It's been brought down. That's been a major theme for us for the entire time of our work. We take things like faith, hope, and charity, and we temporalize them, bring them down. Raber uses the same language that the Christian church uses. I've saved you. Um, you're reborn. Those are his words, not mine. He says to Tarwater, now you're saved. You're reborn. Now you can live a natural life. You can undo all the screwed up things your uncle, great uncle did to you and you can begin to live a normal life. Because he believes, along with the modern, that if we just use science in the right way, we can make a good world. This is leading to our crisis in this section we're going to focus on in a minute. But he's absolutely modern, everyone, and he's a teacher. He does case studies, he does research, um, 
he he does he does his case study on um, old Tarwater when he's with him. He does a, he wants to do a case study on young Tarwater. It infuriates the young boy when he realizes what Raber's doing, because everything Raber does, the, the principle in which he operates is to take a human being and treat it as an object and make it fit a theory in his head based on mathematical probabilities, on science, on quantifiable things. So the modern way as it's presented in the novel is that it's, it's putting these two worldviews, this old Christian prophetic and in lots of ways Old Testament, up against a modern view that if we can just get rid of religion, the superstition, we can create, we can do away with all these problems and create a good world. That's the essential tension at the heart of the model. And if you've read my notes, you know that I've, I've looked back, Freud, Mark, Darwin, all the Enlightenment thinkers, most of the Enlightenment thinkers who were the ones who pushed the Enlightenment, 18th century, 18th century, 19th century, um, Voltaire, you know, the great thinkers of that period, all believed that if you could just get rid of religion and use reason, we could get rid of our problems. Freud takes that into the unconscious so that we actually go into the unconscious, but in him, the unconscious is bad. What drives the unconscious is perverse sexual impulses. It's these bad things that all men have, um, Oedipal and those things. So Raber, in one sense, embodies that whole way of looking at the world, and what happens in the middle of the book is those two ways come into direct collision with each other. Just to put this in a broader perspective, that's exactly the same conflict that Hawthorne and Melville were dealing with. Go back to Melville, what we're dealing, those are the two worldviews that are in conflict there. Because those two, ver those two worldviews reached their crisis 19th century. That's what's concerning Melville, that's what's concerning Hawthorne, that's what's concerning Dostoevsky. All of them, go back to our reading, this is not me. These are our, those writers, all of them are dealing with the same crisis. We saw it in a radical way in Dostoevsky and Mother Russia, ancient holy Mother Russia, and what was happening when all these new Enlightenment ideas were beginning to change the way they affected people, influenced people. Um, one of the interesting things about Raber's position, the modern, is that it affirms the first one, the pagan, Plato and Aristotle. We can learn to be good. We can actually become virtuous. And it denies the second. There's no salvation. There's no such thing as a new birth or a reborn, being reborn. By the way, that was the reading with Nicodemus, I think, this morning. It was, how can you be reborn? Go back. <laughs> I love that. You know, Nicodemus, what do you do? Jump back in your mother's womb? And Christ says, only by the Spirit. So O'Connor is going right to the heart of the basic issues of this conflict in modernity between Christianity and um, modern ways of looking at things. Um, I want to just mention two more things and then I want to stop and take your questions. Then I want to go to the book and look at some of these things. Um, we talked about Manipian satire when we did Dostoevsky, remember? Manipian satire is a way an author has of exaggerating a character um, distorting it as a way of taking what's familiar in our lives 
and defamiliarizing it, making it strange so we have to go back and look at it. It was one of the terms I used when we were looking at Fyodor Dostoevsky, or I mean Fyodor uh, Karamazov, remember? That he always exaggerated everything because he was lost. I mean, he was in a world that, in, in which he had no bearings anymore. The, the world that he was living in was gone. A new world was arising and none of them knew how to orient themselves. When you lose your frames of, we've talked about this repeatedly, it, at certain times in history when something happens, a paradigm shift takes place, it forces everybody to question their assumptions. They can't take things for granted anymore. When, when that happens, to what do you turn for your frames of reference? To what do you turn for guidance? The Holy Spirit? So every one of these works, the major works we've been reading, Faulkner, Dostoevsky, um, particularly those, even Shakespeare in his time, all of them are writing at, at points in history when major changes are taking place. Um, it's leaving people confused and um, not knowing what authorities are real and what, you know, what is and isn't. And O'Connor is writing out of that too. So Manipian satire is a tradition within the literary tradition, it's a, like a subgenre, in which writers take a story but they present it in exaggerated ways in order to make us look at those things that we take for granted and see that there's something going on that typically we don't see. That's true with Old Tarwater, it's all true with Young Totter, Tarwater, it's true with um, Raber as well. He's, he's, Raber is in, he's a modern, he's a modern. Um, there's no way, there's no way to read Raber um, and not see him as a tortured, divided soul. In the climactic scene that I want to look at in a few minutes, you know that he's, in, when he watched the Carmody's, he's in absolute rage. He's remembering that moment when he's with Old Tarwater and his father comes to get him, and the father has nothing but disdain. I'd just soon leave you here. It's your mother who wants you, and who cares about her? He's learned to love this old man. He goes back to the city, and he, he longs for it so much that he tries to escape and go back to Powderhead. You know, and then he's brought back, and he has to live his life in the city. There are those moments when he's looking at young Tarwater, when Tarwater comes to visit him, and, and, and uh, O'Connor, I mean, she does this amazing job. He looks at something, and for a moment, he's overcome with love. He's absolutely overcome. And he, and he has to brush it away because he knows to love means he has to give up all the control he has because to the way he lives, if he understands something, he can control it. So his whole life is wanting to control it to make it what he wants. That's absolutely modern. So he's a man whose rage increases whenever he has to deal with things that um, the reminder of this love. He has to push it away, deny it, force it away. Um, the influence this old man had on him, that his way of looking at him, <laughs> everything he did was out of security. That's Freudian, insecurity. And if the, old, if the young boy would just get rid of all those theories the old man taught him, he would be okay, he'd be normal. Um, so Manipian satire um, is a subgenre in which the artist shows us what's real, what's familiar, but does it in a way that makes it impossible for us to stay in what's familiar. We have to question things and wonder where we are, who we are, who, who are the people around. Do we see the way we think we do? Um, 
two of the images that I want to I want to just if I can find my hope. Um, two of the images I, I put these in my notes that signify that beautifully signify symbolize the two characters, young Tarwater and Raber, are young Tarwater's hat. He wears it. He is not going to give up that hat. I mean, it, it's a symbol of his stubbornness. He got that from the old man. He's not going to move on it. Um, and the symbol that most clearly images um, Raber is his um, ear pad and the box, the earphone, uh, earplug, and the hearing box. Aid. Huh? Hearing aid. Hearing aid. <laughs> that goes with it. Um, let me just give you a couple of images of this. That's, um, I'm on page three. To you don't have to go there. Just, just, just listen for a second because the, I, I want to go beyond. It's just these are some passages that capture that sense. I save you to be free, your own self. He shouted, not a piece of information inside his head. If you were living with him, you'd be information right now. You'd be inside his head. And what's furthermore, he said, you'd be going to school. <laughs> Horror of horrors. Um, by the way, I just I hope I'm assuming that lots of you are aware today of what's going on in school. Susanna's reached a point where she said, she's sane, and I, I mean, I bless her. You know, why send your kids to college today? Why are you going to spend $100,000 for kids to go to school to learn what they're learning today? It's just outrageous what's going on in schools today. Um, there's that other image of the, of the, um, the earpiece um, where... Um, Young Tarwater looks at his uncle and um, sees the earpiece as if it's an appendage um, of him. It's, it's a wonderful Manipian satire um, piece of parody. Um, sorry, hold on, sorry. If anybody can help me with that, that um, image. But he describes... He describes the box as as if as if the human person were an appendage to the box. Um, and by the way, I, the first the first memorable occasion example of that sort of thing for me came with Dickens, because think about this just for a second. Dickens was writing during the um, Industrial Revolution. And if you read enough of Dickens, you know that he began to see that what, think about, this is really important. He began to see that what people do turns them into what they're doing. If you're working on a factory belt all day long, you begin to take on the qualities of that factory. If you're working in front of a computer all day long, you're beginning to take on, the, they define you. That's what you become. It's one of the things that Dick, Dickens sat, um, satirized so well. And O'Connor makes a beautiful use of it here when she describes Raber as an appendage to that box, not the other way around. She knows that he's become that. And remember, that box symbolizes the loss of his hearing. And here it is on page 366, 367. The boy continued to study the machine. This is on 367. His uncle's face might have been only an appendage to it. You ain't done me no good neither, he remarked, because more than anything from his uncle's teaching, he does not want to become an object in the school teacher's head. 
Um, the hat is the same, it's in some ways it's a symbol of um, young tar water. Over and over again it's described as something bound, pushed down in him. The, what Raber wants to get rid of most is that hat, because in his hat, is his mind, that hat symbolizes his uncle, the old tar water. To get rid of that hat is to cut him loose from that influence. Um, and I, I didn't have time to find that, but, but and it's beautifully described at, at one point. Um, so those are the Manipian, um, some of the Manipian elements. Uh, I want to talk about the grotesque comedy, because remember she's writing. According to Flannery O'Connor, the fundamental principle on which she was operating is that um, the world is under construction. That the Holy Spirit is always present. He's always there in people's lives. Um, he will. God never does anything to abrogate our free will. He does everything to work with it. But what he does do is very often allow us to experience the consequences of our choices so that we have to see something about ourselves that we wouldn't see except for those choices. So moments of violence are looked at as moments of grace. Whether people will receive them as grace and learn from them or whether they will refuse them, a grace offered. So she called, she's working with what she calls grotesque comedy. For her, her literary ancestry goes back to Hawthorne. If you go back to Hawthorne and read his short stories, you know there's always something unworldly, something romantic, something outside the world that's always coming into the world. She took that a step farther than Hawthorne did, but that's the genre that she's working in, grotesque comedy. Let me stop here. I want to I look at um, the, the, uh, the, some of the passages. I, I've got two questions to start, um, to, to start our discussion tonight. One of them, and then I want to, and I want to stop for a moment to let you guys have your own questions or comments. Or um, let me ask you guys to see, to see what you make of this. If you had to describe the first two sections, we're we're not going to do the third tonight. If you had to describe section one, part one and part two, could you describe it in terms of point of view? What's the point of view through two thirds of the novel, part one and two? What's the point of view? Because it matters. It matters a lot. What's the point of view? This is crucial. Absolutely crucial. Absolutely crucial. And so often, here's the reason I'm at, so often we read a story and we'll just get caught up in the events and, you know, one event after another and we'll go through it. And we don't think about point of view at all. But point of view is absolutely crucial to the story. It's its form. Remember, we've talked about form. How we see things, what we're seeing, whether we're really seeing what's there. Because so often we don't see very well. We just don't see. Um, what's the point of view? Fred, go ahead. Well, part one, it's through the boy, Francis Tornwater. Yep. And part two is through the uncle, Raber. Yep. Yeah, good. No, come back here. Come back. Why? Why does she do that? Why does she do that? I, I think it's a way of letting us see inside the individual and what's what's going on. And um, 
there's, and I, I, I'm probably going out on a limb on this one, but in, in each one of those sections, there's there's quite a bit of symbolism that, you know, I, I think I mentioned earlier, I've been trying to figure out. Yeah. I think in large part, that helps define for us, you know, what's, what's going on inside the heads of our hearts of those respective characters. Yeah, yeah. Can anybody add anything else? Um, I, Fred's right on in that. The first part, here, let me, let me try to just flesh this out a little bit and then turn it back to you guys again. When you look at the first part, it's, so you all know what third-person limited is. I mean, first person, second, third person. Third person limit is he, she. Jane Austen's novels are typically Jane. Jane Bennett did this, you know, or whoever the character is. He, she did this. Third person, yeah. But it's limited, so that we tend to see things through the person's view. So if you're reading Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, we get almost everything through Elizabeth's point of view, and that's important because there's lots of things she doesn't see. And when the novel reaches that point where Darcy writes that letter to her, suddenly she and we realize there's a lot she missed. She was too proud, and she didn't see things. So that moment represents a turn in her life. Um, and it, what makes it so effective is because it's presented through the third-person limited, that we, we only see as much as she does. So we go through that same change with her. So in Violent Bared Away... O'Connor is giving us the first section through young Tarwater's eyes, and in the section on the middle section, section two, she presents it through Raber's eyes. Okay? Now the transition is when when Raber, this is where we left off last week, where where Tarwater's going to Raber's house. Remember, he sets fire to the old his old great uncle's house, thinking he's in there and he's burning up. So he's doing what his uncle wanted to do, which was burn the old man, destroy him. And he sets off, and he, he's picked up by Meeks. He hitchhikes a ride into the city. And we still continue to get things through Tarwater's mind that are flashbacks about the old man. So it, the advantage of that is that we're seeing what the old man did and the influence, the lasting influence it's had on the kid. So even though the kid wants to get rid of it, it's there. Okay. In the second section, we get things through Raber's mind, and the same thing happens. He keeps going back to memories of the old man that are still with him, even though he's pushing his position with his nephew. That man screwed your life up. You want to do everything you can to get rid of him. He can't get rid of him. And he does it under this rubric. If you only do this, you'll be normal. If you get rid of this man, you do all these things, you take these tests, we can fix you. Go to school. When, when the young boy hears that, he goes almost nuts because the last thing he's going to do is go to school. Um, so we get both of them, and in both cases we see that old tar water's influence is there. The past is there. Neither one of them can escape it. But here, I want I want to push this farther. In the first part with young Tarwater, much of what happens in these recollections dealing with his great-uncle involves this stranger. Remember? Let me just read it. I'm just, I'll grab a couple of passages here. I mean, you could go on because the first, the first sec, 
One of the ways in which we can look at the first section is the first section is a battle between young Tarwater and his great uncle and young Tarwater and this stranger. Right? He keeps going back to these events where the old man was teaching him things and all he could do is respond in spite. But constantly this we get this voice of a stranger. And I, here, let me see if I can... Um, it, I'll, I'll just pick out a couple at random here. Um, middle of 310. I'm, I'm, this is, I'm just going to pick out a, a few... Or 3-9. I'm going I'm to read through some of them. His great uncle has just died. He's gone out to dig a, a grave to bury him. And you know that he doesn't complete, he gets drunk, and when he wakes up, he sets fire to everything. On 309, Tar Tarwater felt the tremor transfer itself and run lightly over him. He knew the old man was dead without touching him, continued to sit across the table from the corpse, finishing his breakfast in a kind of sullen embarrassment, as if he were in the presence of, of a new personality and couldn't think of anything to say. Finally, he said in a querulous tone, Just hold your horses. I already told you I would do it right. The voice sounded like a stranger's voice, as if the death had changed him instead of his great uncle. He got up and took his plate to the back door, sat down, good middle of 310. I'm going to move that fence, Tarwater said. I ain't going to have any fence. I own it in the middle of a patch. The voice was loud and strange and disagreeable. Inside his head, it continued. You ain't the owner. The school teacher owns it. Interesting point here. None of the strangers' expressions have quotes. You can almost overlook it, but it's interesting. They don't have quotes. Um, um, We could we could go on on um, let's say three sixteen seventeen um, let's say the top of three seventeen. Why don't you get on with it? The boy asked, for he wanted something to happen, wanted to see the old man in action, wanted him to kidnap the child and have the school teacher have to come after him so that he could get a closer look at the other uncle. What ails you, he asked. What makes you tarry so long? Why don't you make haste and steal him? I take my directions from the Lord God, the old man said, who moves in his own time. I don't take them from you. It's really interesting because if you listen to the tone of both characters, they almost both seem spiteful. Except the, the great uncle does what he does from God, Tarwater's being just spiteful. Middle of the page. Go ahead, boy, he shouted, sitting up, splotch-faced in his box. Go ahead and let him burn me, but watch out for the Lord's lion after that. Remember, the Lord's lion set in the path the false prophet. I've been leavened by the yeast. Um, he don't believe in, he said, and I won't be burned. So here already, this is a prefiguration of the burning that's going to come, because he knows that Raber wants to destroy him, burn him, and that's what the boy will do. 
and I won't be burned, and when I'm gone, you'll be better off in these woods by yourself with just as much light as the sun wants to let in, then you'll be in the city with him. He kept on digging, but the grave, and not any deeper. The dead are poor, he said, in, a, in the voice of a stranger. You can't be any poorer than dead. It's that phrase, you can't be, that's it. Dead, it's, everything ends with dead, death. He'll have to take what he gets, nobody to bother me, he thought. Ever, no hand up living to hinder me from anything except the Lord's, and he ain't said nothing. He ain't even noticed me yet. Over and over and over again, we kept getting the stranger's voice. Um, we could go on and find lots of it. That stranger will be with him when he leaves Powderhead, if I recollect correctly, in the, um, in the ride with Weeks into the city. Who is this stranger? And let me put it, if I can focus it more dramatically. In the first section, everything is told from the perspective of young Tarwater. But so much of what unfolds involves this conflict between him and the stranger, this voice. In the second section, everything comes to us through Raber's point of view. And what we get there is a conflict between Raber and old Tarwater and young Tarwater. So what's she doing? Who is the stranger? And what's its significance in the, you know, the larger whole of the story? I know those are broad questions, but let's get them out. Who is the stranger? I myself can't believe all of us have not had that voice inside of ourselves. Maybe I'm presuming too much here, but um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb with Fred. Um, who is that stranger? Fred, I hope you don't mind the company. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Who's the stranger? Karen, who is that stranger? Who is? Well, I had the impression that it was like a little devil on one shoulder and a little angel on the other. Do you ever and hear? Who's the angel? Where? That's interesting. Who's the angel? How's that? Where? Where do you see that? Well, it would be like a conversation where they'd say, go on, he's dead, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and then the angel would say something, and he'd say, well, you're really worried about your salvation, not your uncle's. So it was presenting two sides of the uh, argument. Yeah, yeah. I'm not seeing much of an angel there, but but, <laughs> but um, anybody want to take that any farther? Who is this stranger? Is, is it a voice? Is it the devil? Or is it, or is it something in us? Tracy, go. You know, the first time he referred, the first time Tarwater refers to the stranger, he says it's like his own voice was a stranger. And so I do think it does sound like the devil as you're reading it, uh, temptation, but I, I do think it comes from within him, his own com conflicts. Yeah. Okay, let me, if I can torture this. Um, so if it does come from within him, is it the devil in him, or is it just him? I mean, does the devil, um, how to put this, does the devil work in a particular way with each of us because each of us is different, so um, it's related to a voice that's peculiar to each one of us, but still there's something evil, you know, in the depths of our soul. Freud would make the somatic. I mean, he would he would make it physical and the animal unconscious. He would make it sexual violence or something. 
I think it seems to me O'Connor suggesting something um, deeper. Um, anybody, any thoughts on that? Go, go ahead, Fred. Yeah. Yeah, I think we each have our own weaknesses. You know, maybe maybe we share some, but you know, we probably have some that are unique to us. And to me, it's 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 probably the devil at work, but it's it's you know within our subconscious there are these weaknesses where we are vulnerable to um, to evil, and I think because you you see it a little bit in part two as well, although it's not a stranger, but you you see it going on inside Raver's mind. I think I think we all have our unique issues as a result of our life and the environment, whatever whatever you can you want to call it. And um, and when we get attacked, you know you know it seems like the devil knows what to hone in on and where we break down the easiest. But yeah. that's what I that's what came to my mind as as you go through it because it's it's a lot of the things where he he breaks down is the stuff that. You know, his uncle harped on, uh, you know, I mean, his, it, uh, the old tar water harped on in his upbringing and the stuff that he seems to, you know, want to reject more than anything else. And that's kind of where you start to see the breakdown. Uh, or the, the, by breakdown, you mean? Yeah, you know, succumbing to the weakness. Yeah, right, right. Right. Yeah. Anybody else? Sue, did, I didn't know if you were. No. Okay. Just a reminder here. We in a at seas. We've been doing Dante, and we're in the Paradiso right now. And we've actually reached that point. If if I know this has been a while, so it's not going to be on your mind. But it's on my mind because we're doing it again. But we're at that point in the Paradiso where one of the souls has just described the effect of heredity on people, and he makes the point that that very often people make mistakes, and he's got parents largely in mind, but it's not just limited to parents. But it's, it's, it's easier to illustrate with parents. That very often parents have something in their mind that they want to see from their kids, so they impose this view on their kids with real harm. Dante's making the point that each one of us has a different nature, there's something unique to us that... Um, you know, some people are, have proclivities in one direction, others in another. And, and it's hard to get a read on that nature, but it's important because we have to learn with what nature gives us. That's his point. But he followed, what, what Dante follows that with, if you remember, I, I think we all laughed at it when we did it together. You remember in the, when they come to the level of the, the planet, the heaven of Venus, Dante meets um, Cuniza and Fouquet. If you remember, Kinesia had four husbands and three lovers. She's at the level of Venus. I, I mean, I just love that, what we did with our class in it. But, but she's at the level of Venus, and she's, she says, I make no apologies. I, I forgive myself. The, the point of forgiveness is gone. They, all of that was passed in purgatory. So in heaven, there's this great joy. But one of the ironies is th those things that are peculiar to each person, because each of us, following up with what Fred said, each one of us has peculiar gifts. 
And it's very often in those gifts that we're weakest, but which will finally be our glory in heaven. So when she celebrates, when she's in the level of Venus, she's celebrating, and if you remember the Paradiso, remember we go from, I think it was Charles Montel who talked about inheritance and then Cunis and Fouquet. We go to Solomon, who had a thousand wives, and Solomon is going to be treated in the center of the Paradiso as the wisest man of all. That's biblical. God gave him this special wisdom. He's going to celebrate the body, the human body. And I remember the importance, I tried to give that when we met, that what Dante's doing is celebrating our human nature. We're humans, we're not angels. Our bodies are part of who we are. That's the greatness of our creation. Who in the modern world? Calvin? Luther? Scientist? Look at the human body as a, as a thing of glory. And yet Christ took it on. No, when he, in order to atone for our sins. But one of the points of that, that central part of the Perdiso is that um, very often our, our greatest gifts are the sources of our greatest weaknesses. And somehow the fulfillment that we will reach will involve those. So in Cunise's case, for example, she had four husbands and three lovers and something similar for, for Fouquet. So it's just a way of underscoring the point that Fred was making that um, that um, that there's something unique to each one of us, and Satan goes to that. And it's interesting because everything the young boy has been prepped for is to be a prophet, stubborn, convicted, um, determined, centered, focused. It will be the source of all of his wrongs and the source of the great things that he does. Um, so um, so there's this battle going on between tar waters, and it seems to me one of the functions is to show tar waters a divided soul. He's tortured. He, he does not want to carry through with everything his uncle has put on him. He wants to do everything he can to get rid of it. But he's tortured, and he has this voice constantly urging him. It, to me, it's like a voice of pride and a voice of spite. Every, every utterance is a voice of spite. It's something from within him in his pride. Um, and it seems to me it suggests something satanic, that it's the devil at work. Um, what's the advantage of presenting Raber from his point of view and not from somebody else's? What do we learn about Raber what do we learn about Raber from the second section? Because even though the, sec the second section is, is taken up with Tarwater's visit, he comes to the city to, um, to be with his uncle, and he's going to be there through that whole period. He discovers the bishop, and all that takes place between Tarwater and Raber and bishop. What's the advantage to putting it in Raber's point of view? Why the shift? from Tarwater's point of view to Raber's. What do we learn about Raber from O'Connor's presentation of it in that second section? Maybe um, that he can't get away from the uncle either. He's tortured. I mean, he's neither one of them can get away from the influence of the uncle. Yeah. Yes, for sure. For sure. It's a major aspect of what goes on. What do we learn about him as a modern what can we put together? What stands out for you guys? And what in what ways is he singularly, uniquely different from the old man? E even while 
even while there's something in him that he won't. I mean, one of the way, one of the ways we can describe him is he's in denial, and he, he wants to do everything he can to get away from his uncle, and that voice is there. It undoes him sometimes. But in what ways is he modern? Can you can we name identify some of the qualities in him that that make him modern? Like us, I can. <laughs> Um, that's one of the qualities that it marks our world. He tries to deny or his his emotions. You know, like. anybody do any Tracy? What do you say about him as a teacher? This scares me a little. It gets a little bit close to the bone here, but as a teacher, what is? Um, do you think his teaching has anything to do with? Um, Something modern, I guess, to put it, or him as a character, as a teacher? Mm. Cool. I would say just, it's kind of an instinct, I'm not, I don't know, but I would say something like too convicted of, um, you know, rationality and, and um, this is how it is. When we all know, we don't know how it is. Yeah. Fred, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. Fred, did you have something? Um, I, I think if, if it had been told from a third person, like when, when it talks about his relationship with Bishop, um, we, we never would have been able to truly appreciate that from a third person objective, but with him doing it, we become aware of something that I think is, I think is significant in that um, he, he, every once in a while, like when he's holding Bishop in his lap or something, he gets this almost overwhelming sensation of love. Yep. Yeah. And then he does everything he can to dispense with it as quickly as possible. Yeah. 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 So I think, and I, I think, and I don't know, if this is the right time to talk about it, but it, it, I think Bishop is kind of a key character in this whole story because if you look at the relationship that young Tarwater has with Bishop, and you look at the relationship that Raybar has with Bishop, the fact that you we see it from both of their perspectives allows us to really understand that real fundamental conflict that's going on with each of the two characters and how fundamentally different it is. Yeah, yeah. If that makes sense. No, no, it does, absolutely. Yeah. Anybody else, in what way is Raber modern? Different from Old Harwater? Well, let me offer a couple of things here and then, because I want to get to this scene. Um, he lives in his head in abstractions. It's one of the defining characteristics of the modern world. Um, from the beginning, from when we began this course, that you know that I've wanted to start it with a poem, a lyric, that took us concretely to an actual episode. Something, not an idea, not an idea, but a concrete thing. The wind hover, supernatural love, the four-year-old pricking herself. You, you know, 
Kingfisher's catch. We can go Shakespeare's sonnet to his beloved with the wires in her hair and her bad breath. And, you know, we've been not in a world of abstractions or ideas or concepts or theory about love or truth or we've been returned to the world in concrete experiences, experiencing something going on there. In the talk that I gave last night, I used constant examples from the Old Testament in which the psalmist, David, or um, all those psalms um, describing the glory of God, what the Jews called Shekinah, the word Shekinah, the effulgence, the brightness of God. The one thing that the Jewish people wanted more than anything in the world was to see the face of God. And it's the one thing denied them until Christ came, and then they didn't see it. But the one thing they wanted more than anything was to see the face of God, this, she- this Shekinah, this effulgence that was associated with the temple, the radiance of the temple. And if you read the Psalms, you find it in things. Um, what a, give me the, the universe sings the glory of God. Um, I can't remember all the, but constantly things are speaking of God's glory. They speak, they radiate, they glorify God. So the, the psalmist's way of standing with the world is that God was the creator and he was revealed through these things. In the modern world, we've, we've distanced ourselves from things, from concrete things, and moved into an order of abstractions. We hold abstractions in our head. And we do it with the belief that if we've got these theories, these abstractions, we can control the world. That's the basis of modern science. And I, I'm not exaggerating. That's the ba- if you go back to Bacon and his new organ, the, the, the work that he wanted to replace Aristotle's work with, um, the new organon, He's making the claim that we were given a knowledge to, um, to dominate, to submit nature. So the whole effort of the modern world is to have knowledge so that we can change things, better them, improve them, master them. And we know that in the modern world, we think that if we know a person, we can get control of that person. We can change that person's life. We can help that person become normal. I've, I've gone over this again and again. When we looked at Hamlet, remember Poli- um What's, oh God, Polonius said, I can get to, remember he's talking with Claudius the king who's suspicious about Hamlet, and Polonius said, I can get to his secret being. I can get to the heart of a man. Shakespeare knows exactly what's going on at that point because he knows that he, Polonius, the character, thinks that if he can get to this man, he can change him. He can make him over into his own image. And Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, Hamlet's two friends, do the same. They're spying on him to pluck out a secret. That's that scene between Hamlet and, and the two men when he says, you think you can pluck out the secret? You can't play a fiddle. Those are his words. You can't play a fiddle, that flute instrument. And you think you can pluck out the center of me? God is the searcher of things. He's the only one who can see our center. But the presumption of the modern world is that we can lo- learn things and control them, master them. We can create our own world. So Raybird belongs very much to that modern world set. He thinks if he can get a case study on the uncle, he belongs to a world that's gone. It's old-fashioned, it's archaic. If he can only do this, get control of him, and everything old Tarwater says, I am not going to let you get me in your head where you can control me. Make me what you want me to be. So we've lost a contact with mystery, with things with the working of the spirit in the world. Connor knows that, she knows that, and her whole presentation of him is he's that kind of a a character. 
Um, so we've got these two types. Okay, I want to I want to go to this scene. Julie, I mean, let's see. Um, everybody, Debbie. Um, welcome. I saw your name. I hope I hope you're there. I am, and I'm sorry I am so late. Don't be. I'm glad you're here. You're, okay. You've. I, I hope. I hope you guys, when you miss these things, will get the recording. It'll take a couple of days, but there's a lot. Because I think this book is so easily misread. You know, lots of people read this book and look at Old Tarwater as he's nuts because that that's perfectly appropriate to our modern. Put this guy in a. Where else does he belong? This guy who goes around preaching at people, he's nuts. He, he doesn't belong with the rest of us. We're all sane and ordinary and normal. She's, she's shattering that view. Here, I want to go to that scene. Um, if everybody can go there, it's, it's, I want to focus this because it seems to me it takes us to the, the title and what I think is the dramatic climax of the middle section. So let's go there together. Debbie, I'm glad you've joined us now because you're going um, you're gonna to get to what I take to be the center of the novel um, in the city. Okay, here. Um, bear with me for a few minutes, you guys. I'm going to do some reading so that everybody is together on this, okay? Um, remember, this is on page 370, we're in um, chapter 4, this is the first part of the second section in chapter 4, page 370 R's. Tarwater and Raber have been walking through the city. It's Raber's way of trying to acquaint him with the city. And, and you know that everything Raber does is to buy him off. And by the way, I don't want to lose the opening here. Um, quickly, can anybody do this? Characterize Meeks as a businessman. This is the man that picks Tarwater up and takes him to his uncle. So he's the transition between Powderhead and the city. Somebody characterize Meeks. What... How do we characterize what motivates that man? I think Connor's pretty direct on it. Nobody? Was it, wasn't it money? Yeah, but yes, it is money. Uh, but how does, he, how, does he, how does he earn his money? How does he get money? Fred? He's, he's very much a con man. Um... And he'll pretty much try to tell people whatever he thinks will better his position with them in a relationship that just allows him to take advantage of them. Yeah. He uses, yes, to both of you, he uses love. His success rests on his ability to use love. That's not an accident because... In one sense, that shows the transition between the city, or from the powderhead to the city. In the city, you've, you've moved into a world in which people are motivated to get ahead, and what they're going to do to get ahead is use the loves of people to manipulate it. 
O'Connor makes that clear. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm hope I'm right now. I don't want to defend that, but if anybody wants to go back, you'll find that that's exactly what he's doing. Um, he wants to use people. He's a con man, but he uses love. That's Connor's way. If you go back to the work that we've done on the Bible, remember the the, the founding of the city was by Enoch in the separation from God. When man separates himself from God, he uses love as the means of getting everything he wants. That's at the that's at the center of the city of the life of the city. When um, Raber and o and Tarwater are walking through the city on page seventy, they come across this banner on a building at the top of three seven. Over the door was a paper banner bearing the words, Unless ye be born again, ye shall not have everlasting life. That's announcing the fundamental theme at the center of this novel. Baptism. Baptism. It marks a world of rationality from the world of faith. Unless you're born again, unless you're baptized, you will not enter into the kingdom. That's at the heart of this model or this novel. It's, it's, it's at its core. Unless you be born again, you shall not have everlasting life. Beneath a poster showed a man and a woman and child holding hands. Hear the Carmodies for Christ, it said. Now listen, because this is crucial. Thrill to the music, message, and magic of this team. Now hold on to that because that's crucial. Because it's all presented in terms of celebrity Hollywood culture. Magic, music, you know, spotlight, um, so they go on and go home. That night, as Raber is lying in bed, he's wondering if everything he's done hasn't been for a mistake or for no reason, because nothing seems to be working, and he's afraid the boy is going to run, so he's not been sleeping well. I think this is the fourth day. And that night, he's having trouble going to sleep, and then suddenly he hears a door open, and he's afraid that um, young Tarwater is running away to go home. The bottom of 374. The door opened and closed. He leapt up and ran across the hall into the opposite room. The boy was gone. He ran back to his own room and pulled on his trousers over his pajamas. Then grabbing his coat, he went out the door by way of the kitchen, barefoot, his jaw set. Now, I don't want to go into all this, but you know that Raber follows him. It's closed dark. Oh, thanks, Doc. It's very dark. I, there's no moonlight. Everything's in darkness. Um, and what marks the boy <laughs> is his hat. Um, it's the one thing that identifies him as Raber tries to follow him through the city. Now here's where I want to go. Um, <sighs> 379, we can take a lot of... Um, no, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, um, Three seventy-seven. The boy stopped on the next corner. His lean shadow, made by a streetlight, slanted to the side of him. The hat shadow, like a knob at the top of it, turned to the right and then the left. He appeared to be considering his direction. Um, they go on. Raber still following him. Um, 
It's crucial to remember what Fred just said a minute ago. Every, so much of Raber, so much of what he does is in denial of his love. When he puts the boy on his lap, there are moments when he looks at him. He's overcome by this emotion. One of the quotes of it is on 372, but you can, you can find it um, repeatedly. He carries this love, but everything he does is an answer to this power of his mind to work in an abstraction on the assumption that if he does it, it will work. It will be successful. Um, he watched the boy stop in front of this store um, on 377. Let's read it. He stops in the front of the store and looks in the window. And being as opportunistic as he is, Raber's first thought is, I want to know it's in there because tomorrow morning I'll go out and buy it and give it to the boy because he's doing everything he can to ingratiate himself. It's what people do when they buy things for kids so often. That's what his motives are here. 377. Tarwater's face was strangely lit from the window he was standing before. Raber watched curiously for a few moments. Um, the boy leaves and Raber steps out and looks at the window on page 378 and is shocked. 378. The place was only a bakery. The window was empty except for a loaf of bread pushed to the side that must have been overlooked when the shelf was clean for the night. He stared puzzled at the empty window for a second before he started after the boy again. Everything a false alarm, he thought, with disgust. He wanted there to be something in there that he could buy for the boy. It would be a way of buying him off. It's what Meeks did in the car. Meeks was doing everything he can, his whole approach to life, is to use what people love to, to, to advance himself. What's the irony here? Everything a false alarm, he thought, would discuss if he'd eaten his dinner, he wouldn't be hungry. Remember, he gave him an Italian dinner and he had no interest in it. A man and woman strolled past looking with interest at his bare feet. Um, what's the irony here in that scene? No? Wants to give the boy what he wants. Yes. What's the irony? But he can't even recognize what it is the boy wants, so he can't give it to him. Wait, these. Can you wait a minute? What does he want? What's the irony of this scene? Hey, could it be the bread? Yeah. Go on, Julie. Yes. Well, I, you know, I'm always afraid to speak up. Don't be. But, Goodness. Yeah, but I just hit me. Maybe it's the bread and, and, and he's in Christ in the Eucharist is what I think of. Yeah. I, now, how that all, uh, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> that's as far as I can go. No, <laughs> that's far enough. That's far enough. You, 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 I hope everybody's seen. The irony is that Christ presents himself as the bread of life. You know, Tarwater would have said that to the boy. And Raber's missing it. Here's this loaf of bread, and Tarwater looks in the window. It's the one thing he wants, and Raber doesn't see it. He just doesn't see. Um, here, one last thing before we look to the um, 
the Carmody's on page. Sorry, my. Um, one of the ironies of this is that Raber has wanted to present him all, 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 all along as if he's okay. You know, he's sane, he's normal. Okay, so Tarwater flies out the door, and Raber's got his pants over his pajamas and a jacket over his pajama tops. And um, three seventy-six. A patch of sky blanched, revealing for a moment the outlines of the housetops. Tarwater turned suddenly to the right. Raber cursed himself for not stopping long enough to get his shoes. They'd come into a neighborhood of large, ramshackle boarding houses with porches that abutted. People are in them. So people are watching him, because some people are still out on, the, you know, on their porches. The boy stopped. This is 377. The boy stopped at the next corner. His lean shadow, made by a streetlight, slanted to the side of him. The hat shadow like a knob. We described that. Raber's muscles felt suddenly weighed. He was not conscious of his fatigue until the pace slackened. Tarwater turned to the left and Raber began angrily to move ahead again. They went down a street of dilapidated stores. When Raber turned the next corner, the gaudy cave of a movie house yawned to the side of him. A knot of small boys stood in front of it. Forget your shoes, one of them chirped, chirped. Forget your shirt. He began to kind of limping lope. So all the while he's doing this, um, does anybody see the grotesque irony of this? What's the irony in all of this? He's wanted to present himself as normal all along. He's following this boy. All these people are watching him, and, they're, and he's aware that they're all making judgments, that they're looking at this guy and thinking he's probably insane. He's presenting himself all the while as if he's the sane one, and yet this is what we're seeing. Bare feet, pajamas, following this hat, and, and, and the young kids are, are making fun. Um, Hi, that was silverware. Yeah, I see. <laughs> It's just one of these grotesque comic moments when a human being who wants to see himself as being normal is being exposed. I mean, I, I hope everybody's getting it. It's as if, you know, the whole, one of the advantages of the Christian world is that we, and we, we live in a world in which we know there's something wrong with us, or we should know. There's something wrong with all of us. We're sick. We need a doctor, and the doctor for us is Christ. The rest of the world says the doctors we need are other doctors. And Rayburn belongs to that world where he thinks, you know, if we only do this, we'll be normal. And he presents himself that way. And yet we're watching him go down the street. This is leading up to this climax. And everything about it is grotesque comedy. It's hilarious. Um, or at least it was to me. I <laughs> kept laughing at this guy thinking, does he see, does he have any notion how ridiculous he is? You know, the kids are making fun of them. People on the porch is watching this guy and staring and making their judgments. Okay, let's go to the Carmody scene because this is where I think this is the heart of the crisis of the middle section and in some ways maybe the book. He suddenly sees Ray, um, Tarwater turn into this home and... Um, On page 378, in the middle of the page, as he reached the place, singing burst flatly against his eardrums. Two blue and yellow windows glared at him in the darkness like eyes of some biblical beast. Remember the two eyes that were following the boy out of the forest when he 
set the house on fire. Two blue and yellow windows glared at him in the darkness like the eyes of some biblical beast. He stopped in front of the banner and read the mocking words, unless she be born again. That's the center intuition of the novel. That the boy's corruption was this deep did not surprise him. What unstrung him was the thought that what Tarwater carried into the atrocious temple was his own imprisoned image. Here, before we go in front, here's one of the grotesque comic images, the meta, the meta um, manipian satire that I talked about. One of the interesting things about this book, um, and I don't think I'm going to do it justice, but let me offer this. In Shakespeare and Dante, particularly Shakespeare in the modern world, particularly with Shakespeare in the modern world, once the human person loses a sense of final ends, who we are supposed to be, the reading to date, the boldly proclaim it. Once respectability takes over the world of sacraments, that's a Protestant world, once respectability replaces the sacraments and we lose a sense of final ends, we lose a sense of who we are and we identify ourselves with respectability with shadows. And doubles start to appear. We talked about this with Dostoevsky. In Dostoevsky, very often you have somebody who's got a double, a look-alike, because it's, it's the way that the modern writer has of sh depicting a person without showing he's gone to hell, because he lives his life according to respectability. So these doubles start appearing. Is that clear? It's in Shakespeare, it's in Dickens, um, it's like a look-alike um, in Tale of Two Cities. Um, Carlton has a look-alike. There's happens in Shakespeare a number of times. Um, it happens in Dostoevsky a good number of times. If we identify ourselves with respectability and not our final ends, we become a shadow of ourselves. That's why the the uh, Walking Dead. I think why the genre of the Walking Dead has become so popular because, in in a sense, we can say that human beings become dead souls. The Walking Dead. We're living according to a shadow, um, something that's not real. The code, we saw this in, in Faulkner's The Town, and, um, and even in Melville's Moby Dick with, um, with the, what was the, felt the, the, the evil people that um, Ahab brought ahead, brought on board to work with him. Fadala or something. Yeah, Fadala. Um, what's interesting about this novel is that all of those men Old Tarwater, Young Tarwater, and Rayburn and, and Bishop are presented as lookalikes. Rayburn can't look at the child without Ray, or Bishop without seeing the old man. He can't look at Tarwater, Young Tarwater, without seeing Old Tarwater. He can't look at himself without seeing that old man. And when he presents himself to Young Tarwater, he says, I will be your father. I will be him. The image of himself. And it's interesting that they're all different, and yet they all go back to the same person. It's as if implied. I'm, I'm making. I'm making a real jump here. I'd have to work to defend this, but I just. It's as if they all go back to the same archetype, Christ. Remember in um, Gerard Manley Hopkins' Kingfisher's Catch Fire, or. All of, all of the things in creation image Christ. All of them. All of them. The imago Dei. The, 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 the naturalite, 
what's the the anime naturalite christiani the natural image of christ each person bears the signature of christ well, but and but there can be a perversion. But the interesting thing is, is that they're doubles, triples. They all image each other in some remarkable way, struggling to get free, and in some ways becoming perverse. I mean, young Tarwater had wants nothing to do with his uncle. Raber tries to do everything he can to get rid of them, but they cannot get rid of that image without violating themselves. Um. Now hold on to that notion of doubling just for a second here because she's going to do something more with it here in this scene. Um, Tarwater goes into this house. Raber tries to find a window that will allow him to look into it and when he looks in he sees an anteroom leading, op- leading to a sort of small theater. Um, and what he finds there is the mother saying in um, 381 that she and her husband have toured all over the world um, to witness to Christ, basically. 381. For ten years I was a missionary in China, the woman was saying. For five years I was a missionary in Africa. One year I was a missionary in Rome where minds are still chained in priestly darkness, this is a fundamentalist group who has no sympathies for um, Catholicism. But for the last six years, my husband and I have um, traveled the world over with our daughter. They have been years of trial and pain, years of hardship, suffering. Um, she makes an appeal for money, and it's at that point that Raber, Raber believes that what they're doing is purely for money. Um, now, at that moment, the mother who has, who's draped in this um, um, long scarf sort of dress pulls open part of it and emerges this young girl. Um, and it's like a magic trick or a show trick because, remember, they're under a spotlight, so it's a sort of Hollywood magical trick taking place. Um, the bottom of 381, to us she said, you are as important as the great rulers of the world. Here she lifted the end of her cape and holding it out as a magician would make a low bow and from that emerges her daughter who's going to tell this story. The story that she tells, this is Lucette. Do you all know what Lucette means? Lucy from Dante. Lucette means illumination, light. So from this evangelical group emerges this little girl and she's going to tell the story of God. And basically her story is this on 382. God was angry with the world because it always wanted more. It wanted as much as God had and it didn't know what God had but wanted it and more. It wanted God's own breath. It wanted his very word and God said, I'll make my word Jesus. I'll give them my word for a king. I'll give them my very breath for... For theirs, listen you people, she said, flung her arms wide. God told the world he was going to send it a king, and the world waited. The world thought a golden fleece will do for his bed, silver and gold, you know, this wealth. Um, it didn't get um, what it wanted. Okay. On page 383, listen you people, she cried. 
The world knew in its heart the same as you know in your hearts and I know in mine. The world said, love cuts like the cold wind and the will of God is plain as the winter. Where is the summer will of God? Where are the green seasons of God's will? Where is the spring and summer of God's will? She keeps describing Mary as this winter mother and the child is this blue child because they were born in winter. So everything about them signifies things that are in opposition to what the world wants because the world wants a, a nirvana, an Eden. Summer, nice warmth, comfort, but God didn't give them that. 384, about him at 383. You and I knew, she said, turning again, what the world hoped then. The world hoped old Herod would slay the right child. The world hoped old Herod wouldn't waste those children, but he wasted them. He didn't get the right one. Jesus grew up and raised the dead. Um, Herod killed children. Um, so this is the first explicit allusion to the killing of children. 382, a little girl hobbled into the spotlight. Raber cringed. Simply by the sight of her, he could tell she was not a fraud, that she was only exploited. She was 11 or 12 with small, delicate face. Go down. She says, I want to tell you why Jesus came and what happened to him. I want to tell you how he'll come again. I want to tell you to be ready. Most of all, I want, you to, I want to tell you to be ready so that on the last day you'll rise in the glory of the Lord. That is the center of her talk. Go down. God was angry with the world because it always wanted more. It wanted as much. You know, I just said that. Now go on over. Go on over. 384. Um, this is when Herod kills the children. 384, Jesus grew up and raised the dead, she cried, and the world shouted, leave the dead lie. Remember we've been saying that, what is it? There's nothing, nothing deader than dead. Nothing deader than dead. You can't escape that. The one thing that defi defines the world without Christ is all of us will die. The one thing that de um, defines Christianity is death is not the end of things. Christ will give a life to those who believe in him, follow him. Jesus grew up, she cried, and the world shouted, leave the dead lie. The dead are dead, can stay that way. What do we want with the dead alive? Oh, you people, she shouted. They nailed him to a cross and run a spear through his side, and then they said, now we can have some peace. Now we can ease our minds. They hadn't but only said it when they wanted him to come again. Their eyes were opened and they saw the glory they had killed. She keeps saying, um, Jesus is coming again. Now here is a, a crucial point, it seems to me, that goes to the title. So pay close attention to this. Listen, world, she cried, middle of 384, flinging up her arms so that the cape flew out behind her. Jesus is coming again. The mountains are going to lie down like the hounds at his feet. The stars are going to perch on his shoulder. And when he calls it, the sun is going to fall like a goose for his feast. Remember in Dante, when Dante and Beatrice began to ascend the heavens, Beatrice looked at the sun, didn't flinch. Dante looked at the sun. Eventually, they're going to enter the sun. Who in his mortal body can look at the sun? And yet Christ made it. 
One day, whatever, remember that passage from John, and we will be like him. We, first, we shall see him as he is. He made the sun. When we look at him, we will be able to see the sun. We, we, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. This is the creator of the world. He created everything. In our mortal bodies, we're prevented, but our belief is that gradually, through the sacraments, we can participate in his divinity. We be, take on something of God's nature. When he comes again, the mountains will know him and bound forward. The stars will light on his head. The sun will drop at his feet. But will you know the Lord Jesus then? Remember that passage from John. We will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Raber saw himself fleeing with the child to some enclosed garden where he would teach her the truth, where he would gather all the exploited children of the world and let the sunshine flood their minds. If you don't know him now, you won't know him. Listen to me, world. Listen to this warning. The holy word is in my mouth. The holy world is, word is in my mouth, she cried, and turned her eyes again on his face. This time there was a lowering concentration in her gaze. He had drawn her attention entirely away from the congregation. Come away with me, he silently implored, and I'll teach you the truth. I'll save that beautiful child. Her eyes still fixed on him, she cried, I've seen the Lord in a tree of fire. The word of God is a burning word to hurt you, burn you clean. Go down a few lines. The child alone in the world was meant to understand him. Burns the whole world, man and child. Um, she will eventually look at Raber and say she's seen a damn soul. So, hold on. I want to try to put these two things together. Two things are happening here, and I missed the other one. I'm. Um, you remember that during this period, I thought it was during the scene, Doc, when, when Raber... Somebody help me here because I'm because I'm getting two scenes confused. When Raber's looking at what's in front of him, he keeps remembering that moment when he sat next to Tarwater, when Tarwater kid old Tarwater kidnapped him. Remember, he's in the clearing, and he watches his father approach. So two scenes are presented simultaneously, as if they coexist. He's, I thought here with the Carmodies, but it may have been earlier, mm -hmm. and. Um, He's watching what's going on right in front of him. And the drama is increasing. And at each moment we get a description of him present to whatever's taking place in front of him. He's recalling that moment when his father came to get him. Remember, this was the theology student who's cynical and bitter and he approaches him. He comes to the steps where he's sitting with the old man. And he has nothing but disgust. And he says, I don't know why I'm here. I don't want you. I'm here because your mother wants you. And I don't. What page is it, Doc? It's the wrong page. It's not the same book. Let it go. Let it go. Um, I don't want you. He's cynical. He's disgusted. He was a theology student. And he's the one who takes his life when the woman. No, different one. Wait. Different no, this one. is. This is. This is Tarwater's. This is Tarwater's father. Oh, this is Raber's father. Raber's father? Raber's father. Yeah, sorry, Raber's father. Sorry, Raber's father. Um, father. So, two scenes simultaneously are presented, and the drama's building. And now we get to the scene where he comes to this meeting house where a revival meeting has taken place, and he's watching this young girl 
who's speaking about being born again in this fire. And Raber's response is, I want to rescue her. He'd like to rescue all... He's exactly like Ivan in Brothers Karamazov. The innocence of children. Herod killed the children. Raber wants to save. And all of these children, Raber, young Tarwater, Bishop, have all suffered the violence of this man. The children suffered under Herod. Raber wants to rescue them so that they don't have to suffer anything. Okay? All of, to, to spare them of this suffering. Is everybody following? So, in what way does this scene speak to the title of the novel? At the center of this no novel is this call to baptism. The children will be baptized, and in that baptism their life will be changed. They will be spared a death, and people who don't won't be. That's the, that's the force of the young girl's talk. And she is passionate, she's full of conviction, she means it. She turns to the people, meaning when she turns to Raber, she sees somebody who doesn't believe it, and she'll reach a point where she'll say, I see a damned soul. So at the center of this is baptizing children. And we've seen that in each of the instances where a baptism has taken place, children die. They suffer violence. So what's the meaning of the title of the novel in light of this scene? Hold on before you go anywhere with your thinking. Let me just read the, the passage from Matthew again. From the days of John the Baptist until now, John was beheaded. He loved Christ. Every one of the characters that we've been looking at have suffered violence for Christ, either by their own choices or by something done that involved them with Christ. Yeah? From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent bear it away. So what's the meaning of the novel if we look at it in light of this one scene with Raber looking at this girl? He sees her, he sees Bishop in her, he sees young Tarwater, he sees another child. He would like to rescue her, take her away to this sunlit world and spare her. Um, and what we've got on our mind is all the violence that's taking place around baptism. So... What's the meaning of that title in light of this scene? Debbie! Debbie, where are you? I would love to. Debbie, are you there? Deborah Boyle, are you there? You're on mute, Deborah. Debbie, did you undo your mute? I don't know. Anybody, anybody have a thought on this? Fred, did you, did, did you have a thought? Well, I, I guess originally I thought that it was a, it was a reference to violence is often the precursor to a grace. And as I, as I thought more about it, there may be 
that may be in part true, but it may be more of a, a question that sometimes Christianity is constantly under duress from violence, from violent people, and it ultimately takes an act of violence in order to bear that violence away. And it almost it almost refers to the crucifixion. I mean, here we had, you know, all of this violence, the sin that we were engulfed with, and it took a very violent act to carry that away. And and my thought here is, you know, Raber's kind of, you know, violent in a sense that he's trying to he's trying to pull all of these people away from um, the call, if you will. I mean, what you see kind of throughout the whole novel is Tarwater, Francis Tarwater, is constantly feeling hunger and thirst. But whenever he eats and drinks, it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't resolve. It doesn't the satisfy, problem. yeah. And the very fact that he's here at this church, he's he's looking for something. And, and the grotesque, you know, irony of all this is that Raber's constantly taking him to all these different restaurants, trying to feed him all and, you know, all of these different things. And, and he's frustrated because... Francis Tarwater is never impressed by any of that. And the problem is, it's kind of like the, the lady at the well, right? I mean, he's looking for a different kind of substance. Right, right, substance. right. And it kind of seems like to me in this scene, you know, um, O'Connor's kind of given us a lot of opportunities to appreciate that that difference, that, that conflict of what, Tarwater wants and what Braver's trying to give him, but right here it's very clear. I mean, he's trying to rescue this young girl from from that grace because he doesn't see it, and she points right at him and says, "You're the problem." Yeah, yeah. After after he has said to himself, "This child was made to understand me, the only one who could understand." Yeah, 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 yeah. But by the way, I want to go back for a second, just to, because we've seen, I think, pretty clearly. I, I hope at this point that there are two world views in collision that are not reconcilable. Not the world thinks that it doesn't need God and can do without Him, and it will survive, and death will be the end of things, and that's it. Leave the dead, you know, all of that. And it's it's a world that rests on the premise that it can rescue people and and do away with suffering. It can spare people. It can save people. All of Raber's language is the language taken over from Christianity. Now you can save yourself. Now you can live a normal life. You know, all the language, the same language. You can be reborn again and become normal. So everything about that world says we can handle everything. We're capable of doing it without God. And the other one says you can't, and the means into this is baptism. That's at the center of our faith. Protestant Catholic. Go back to the beginning. Um, old Tarwater um, started preaching violently to his sister, got put in an asylum. Um, he, he captured um, Raber, had him until the father came and took him, captured him, stole him, violently. Not violently. 
captured him. That's an act of violence. He took him away. Um, when he has young Tarwater, um, the pair, Raber and the social worker, come to get him. He shoots Raber in the knee and shoots his ear off so he can't hear. And there's that allusion to it. You can't hear the word of God. There's something he doesn't pick up. You know, and the machine won't be adequate. I mean, all of that is wonderfully symbolic of these two worlds. But there's nothing Old Tarwater did that, was, that didn't take the form of something violent. Kidnapped two children. He shot um, his nephew's knee and his ear off. And he's commissioned in the passing of the mantle, Elijah, or Elijah to Elisha, to baptize that child, um, Bishop. I don't want to go there yet, but the baptism is going to be a violent moment. And here in this scene, we've got Raber looking at this child, wanting to rescue her. It's in the context of Herod killing the children. And all of these children who enter into a violence because of their Christian faith, something happens. And his view is, I want to spare this child. I wish I could get her out and take her to a sunset you know, setting. Um, Doc, yeah. So, what's your take on the connection between this scene and the and um, the title? I think that everybody's been right. There's been a lot of violence, and can you all hear Suzanne? Okay. Can you, can you there's a lot of violence in Old Tarwater, in Raber, in Young Tarwater, um, and. O'Connor looks at violence as the image of grace breaking into the world. So violence, when we think of violence, we think of something bad. We want to get rid of it. Um, and O'Connor looks at violence as an image of grace breaking in on a world that is not listening, that is not paying attention. Um, they suffered, Doc, take these. From the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violent, and the violent bear it away. What does that mean, the violent bear it away? Uh, no. I thought you said it at dinner pretty well. You say it. No, you say it. I don't remember what I said. <laughs> we had a nice, we had a, I, we were talking about this before dinner. I thought you were right on on it. I don't remember what I said. Anybody else want to jump in here before we... The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent bear it away. Lots of people read this as if violent people destroy the kingdom, they take it away. I think the meaning is the opposite. Um, if you're in a world in which people want to make everything okay, what's their response going to be to the coming of Christ, to baptism? Herod killed the children. He killed them. All the children involved here who who are connected with baptism, suffer violence. To enter into the Christian faith is to bring Christ's love into the world where it is not going to be tolerated. The kingdom of heaven suffereth violent and the violent bear it away. It's in those hands, the children that Herod killed, young Tarwater, um, old Tarwater, bat or bishop in some way, are all bearing the love of the kingdom um, in the face of the violence that will be done against them for that, Raber. 
um, it's not going to stop anything. I mean, we're going to see that that those graces will continue to be given in the world, but the cost of it in a world that resists Christ will be violent. The ones who will bear it away are the ones who love Christ. Christ himself, I mean, he's the image of it in the crucifixion. We participate in the um, Eucharist every week being asked to um, participate to carry in our own lives Christ, particularly when it's going to cause violence, when people will oppose it. All of the, all of the disciples were martyred. Saints are often martyred. They're the ones who bear the kingdom against a world that doesn't want it. So it seems to me here at the center of the poem, or it's this work, is this scene in which Raber watches this young girl preach, be born again, um, and looks at him. What's the image? What was that quote? He says he thinks of her as being the only person who could understand him, who was born to understand him. And she wants to take, or he wants to take her to a... Enclosed garden. Enclosed garden. It's a tendency in the world to escape the cross, to have nothing to do with Christ, because the enlightenment rationalistic mindset is, if we only do this, we will have our world, the world that we want. So these two worlds are in serious conflict with each other. It's the same, it's the same conflict from another perspective that we saw in Melville, with Ahab and Ishmael, with Dimsdale and Hester in Scarlet Letter. Um, you read it, Doc. You... Um, he felt some miraculous communication between them. The child alone in the world was meant to understand him. He felt that in the space between them, their spirits had broken the bonds of age and ignorance and were mingling by the child's silence. No, by the, uh, in some unheard of knowledge of each other. Were mingling in some unheard knowledge. Of each other. Question is, I and then mean, she says, "I see a damsel." Damsel, yeah. The question is, at that moment, even if there's some truth to it, has Raybird entered into her world? He wants to rescue her and spare yeah. her. She's entered into him. She does see him. Yeah. In, let me stop. Any questions on this? Because it seems to me this is the dramatic. This is the climax. The spiritual climax of the of the story. We're going to go on. I mean, there's lots more to happen. Um, and we'll see if we can finish it next week. But it seems to me this is a terribly dramatic. I, I'm sorry I missed that that scene where Raber is recalling with whatever's in front of him at that moment. He, at each moment, he keeps recalling his father approaching to get him, and the two worlds coincide, and you can feel the drama building. Two worlds are in collision, and then this this moment happens with uh, Lucetta. Tracy, go ahead. Are you saying in Matthew's Gospel that the violent bear it away, that the violent are the apostles or the followers, the people who hold, who carry Christ in their heart? Yep. In other words, it switches. Yep. Like there's violence done on the kingdom of God, but then let me in put a way, it, bringing Christ to the world is yep. a violence. Is that what you, okay? Yeah, okay. Let me, let me try to put it differently. We usually associate... Wait, here. Let me, let me try to flesh this out because I, I think it's one of the great tensions of our modern world. We do everything in our world to do away with violence, right? All of us. 
None of us wants violence. In a utopian bourgeois world, a suburbia world, we do everything we can to escape the city to get away from violence. Violence is bad. When people commit violent acts, they're bad. They usually do an injustice. They commit a violence. They're breaking a law. They're doing violence. Are they the ones who bear the kingdom away? I don't think so. I think what the what Christ is referring to in this passage is that it, because look at the disciples. Did any of well, I mean you can look at Moses because he killed somebody, but look at all the disciples. Did any of them kill anybody? Did Christ kill anybody? Do the saints kill anybody? Joan of Arc did in a war, but generally. None of them kill people. They're not violent people. And yet every one of them is involved in a violence that in, this is an expression of bringing Christ to the world. And in them, their love is bearing the kingdom. It cannot mean the opposite. That it's about people doing violence. It's the, and it's hidden. It's veiled. It, I mean, people misread it. They read it the other way. Take a look at any person who's lived Christ in his life. It's, it's rare for any of those people not to be involved in some violence around them. All the disciples were crucified horribly. Christ was crucified. Martyrs, saints, violence done to them. People didn't like them. They didn't like Christ. They didn't want Christ. In the modern world, the, the schism that's always... Wait, every age has had sin. Our age is no different from any age in that respect. Every, But one of the things that marks our age that makes it different from any age in history, we're the only people to have existed in history that came after Christ that denied him. We live in a scientific world based on scientific premises that have as their aim to, to bring peace to the world, to make a good world. It's a utopian world. So the schism, the separation, the division between those two worlds is in some ways exaggerated. It's, it's um, greatly exacerbated in our life. Um, but wherever people bring Christ to the world, it always in, so often involves the violence. People don't want it. Herod killed the kids. Raber wants to spare this child. To me, he's the most perfect example of a world wanting to, to avoid, like Ivan, like Ivan and Brothers Karamazo. Wherever Christ is at work, um, he's, something's, the likelihood is something's going to happen that will involve a violence that's an expression of his love bearing the kingdom. I think that's the meaning here, that the cost of Christ's love is generally a violence. And it's our world that wants to oppose it, that is in a large measure the cause, like Herod. I mean, go back and reread that scene and, and um, look at the place, the role that Herod has. It's, it's almost as if um, um, uh, Raber is a Herod figure. He wants to spare kids. But what he's going to do is bring on violence. If you look at the novel, that's what's happening. Herod didn't want to spare kids. I know, but and, and I know, but he and and Raber does. But what he's going to do, everything he does, is in opposition to Christ. It's gonna it's gonna make things worse. 
not bitter. So I think there's a subtlety to the to the title, and I think this this scene um, gives it away. Let me ask this: Can I? Because I, I we're we're way past the time that that I wanted to stop, and I'm sorry for the. When we start, let's pick up with the scene and just go through it again. And any questions any of you have, read it again, all of you. Just take a look at the scene again. Pick up where Raber is um, recalling the, the scene in which his father comes to get him. Pick up from there and read forward to the scene. And we'll see if we can't finish the novel next week. Because remember, young Tarwater has been commissioned by a prophet to carry on the work of a prophet, what's going to happen and what's going to be the cost of that act? Violent, nonviolent. And and what's its effect going to be on Raber? What's going to happen to Raber? I don't want to give things away because I don't know where you are. But but let's pick up here, can we, with any questions you guys have, this, what the title means and, and, and see if the novel sheds any light on it? Okay? Um, it really, part of the beauty of this, at least for me, is that it, it takes a respectable world, a modern, secularized, respectable world, and it brings it up to Christianity. It puts those two worlds together, and it shows that there is a violence at the center because those two worlds cannot be reconciled. Either Christ is real, and what he meant is real, and things will happen, and the cost of it will be hell, or fire or in Raber's I mean the girl says she's looking at a damn soul either the world can save itself it doesn't need God and it can do everything it can to escape him or um, Christ is real and what he said is real and he has to be taken seriously and people who love that way won't be understood by the world that's the those are the terms of the conflict as clearly as I can put them. Is that any final questions or comments before we leave? It seems to me it sort of shatters our comfort. I mean, I, I, I may be too much speaking for myself, but we've been raised, we've been, all of us have been raised in a bourgeois world. It was our beginnings. It's the world, it's, it's Plato's cave. That's the world we've all been raised in. It's formed us. I don't think any of us here wants to commit an act of violence. I mean, Maybe I'm wrong on that, but I don't think any of us wants to. And we're so used to we're so used to thinking we can go on living the way we do and everything will be okay. When Christ is saying, Pope Francis said, "Get out of your pews." That's it. Or Pope, get out of your pews, get into the world and evangelize. So, on that happy note. You guys have a good week. I'm really looking forward to our last class on this. So let's pick up here with any questions you've got or we'll go back and look at the scene a little bit more closely and put it together and then go on and finish the novel. Okay? You guys have a good week. Um, um, keep us in your prayers. We will keep you in our prayers and you all stay safe. Okay? Have a good week. See you next Bye. week. Yep. Boy.